I appreciate uh, both pastors, Carl and Aaron, giving up their, their pulpit and being able to invite me out uh, out here. We had a good seminar yesterday, um, and I hope to be able to deliver to you uh, an encouraging message from God's Word. If you wouldn't mind turning uh, in your scriptures to John chapter 21, I would like to read John 21, 15 to 19. When you get to that passage, if you wouldn't mind rising for the reading of God's Word. Um, so it's John 21 and 15 to 19. I'm going to read this and, and then we'll pray and we'll look at what God's Word says. John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, you were young and you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you are old, you stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he would he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to several passages this morning, and we look to the fact that you know everything. We want to look specifically as, as you walked this earth, that you knew the minds of men. You know our minds. You know everything we think and our motivations. You know when we feel lonely, when we're hurt, even when others do not. We always know that you know us. We thank you that you are always with us. You never leave us or depart us. Lord, as we look to your word, may the Holy Spirit illuminate our minds to an understanding that we would know you better because we spent this time in your word. Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. What I'd like to present is a specific aspect of Jesus Christ through the Gospels. Um, I'm working on a book. It takes me a very, very long time to write books. <laughs> I've been working on this for a couple of years, but I've been working on going through all the Gospels and look at the different aspects that we see that Jesus Christ either said he was God or does the works that only God could do, or has things about him that witness to the fact that he is God. 
what I'd like us to do this time is to take a look at what Peter had just said in the text that we read. And to look at the fact that he basically is saying that Jesus has an attribute that only God has. Omniscience. It means to be all-knowing. Many of us husbands wish. We don't want to be all-knowing. We just want to understand one person. (laughs) Right? And some of the wives wish that too. (laughs) Although I don't know if they're wishing that their husbands understood them or they understood their husbands. But let's not get too crazy. Your husbands can't be understood. So the reality is, is that when we see Jesus doing things, like reading people's minds or knowing the hearts of people, knowing what people are thinking, he's actually putting his deity on display. It's one of those things that we often just read over as we read the text that we had just here. And, and Peter says, Lord, you know everything. Do we read that and say, wait a minute, how could he know everything? Now, now I, I will preface because whenever you talk about the omniscience of Christ, there is one caveat that always comes up. People will always turn to the, the two passages where, where Jesus says, they ask him about the end times, when will these things come? And people always turn to that and say, see, Jesus could not have been omniscient. He didn't know everything. Because he says when they ask when are these end times going to come, he turns and says the angels that... that Uh, The angels do not know, only the Father knows. Sorry, the angels and Son do not know, only the Father knows. People say, see, the Son does not know something, only the Father knows. And they think he's referring to God the Father, and well, he is. But what actually, when we look at that passage, that is a Jewish idiom. It relates to a marriage. So when Jesus said that the Son and the angels do not know, only the Father knows, he's not saying he does not know something. He's basically saying what would be said as an idiom to say, mind your place. It's not for you to know. See, in a a Jewish marriage, the Son would prepare a house. He would work on that house. And when the Father decided the time was right, he would say, go get your bride. The Son never knew the day or hour that he was going to get married. It's when the father said, you're ready. They would march through town. This is a time of small villages. Everyone in town was invited. I'm thinking, I'm preparing a wedding in November for my daughter, and I'm thinking, I'm glad I live in this generation where it's just a hundred people being invited. (laughs) Not the whole town. But that's what happened. The whole town would come. So we, we have to preface to say, because I want you to realize that people will turn to that passage and, and they'll say, well, Jesus in his humanity, he didn't know things, but in his deity, he did know things. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we have to dig into the scriptures, dig into the times that these things are written to understand what people are saying. And what Jesus was saying in those two passages is using an idiom of marriage. Okay, I don't want to get into to that enough to get into the context there. But you can look at those passages and see he's talking about the, the expectation that we should have. And that's this, what a son would have, that there should be a, this expectation. You never know when the time would be. So those passages cannot be used to argue that Jesus did not know things. It is unfortunately our own ignorance being so many years removed and being removed from Judaism to understand that. 
okay? And so I want to give that caveat right off the bat because some of you might be thinking of that passage as we go through these different texts, all right? Um, the first time I heard that passage preached, I was very confused with the pastor. He spent 20 minutes trying to explain how Jesus could be God and still not know things. And I was really confused. And I, after the words, I walked up to my pastor and I said, what, why didn't you just explain it's a Jewish idiom? He's like, it is? I'm like, yeah, I grew up hearing it. <laughs> so sometimes backgrounds, being Jewish, can help. <laughs> but when we look at this passage, and this passage is really, um, there's a lot here lost in the English. I want to read this again. Because a lot of people take this passage in, in John and they think that what Peter is upset because the third time he was asking him, do you love me? And there were three times that Peter denied him. And that those two points are true. But there's something we lose in the English that we get in the Greek. And we see why Peter appealed to Jesus' omniscience. I'm going to replace... And you read along, and I'm going to replace the word agape in Greek with the word love. It is, a, it is the strongest way of defining love, a self-sacrificing love. There's another word that's used in this passage, phileo, a brotherly love. I think we're going to see that this ends up being a little different. Uh, we end up seeing Jesus in 15. He says, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, if you remember before the... Before the crucifixion, what were they arguing over? Who was the greatest? Do you love me more than these? Right? And what does Peter says to him? <clears throat> yes, Lord, you know that I like you. He says, feed, feed my lambs. The second time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter responded and said, yes, Lord, you, you know I like you. The third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you like me? See, now do you see why it says, Peter was grieved that a third time he said, do you like me? Jesus was questioning that level. Jesus saying, do you really love me? You know, I kind of like you here. No, do you really love me? I kind of like you here. Do you even like me there? What does he appeal to? Jesus, you know all things. There's times in Peter's life he forgot that. I mean, he walked with Christ for three years, and there's clearly times he, he forgot that Jesus knows everything. Because just a few days ago, they were arguing over who would be the greatest. We, we, we may see that. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. But the omniscience of Christ is something that shows that he's God, because this is an attribute only God can have. And so if you were to look at Mark chapter 2, we're going to flip around a little bit in the, in the scriptures. Um, but in Mark chapter 2, I, I want to read verses 1 and, and following to see. This is a, a time where you see, uh, well, I'll give you some context. So I want to jump right in some, but you end up seeing that here Jesus comes to Capernaum. In verse 1, he, re he returns to Capernaum in those days, and it was reported that he was home. Uh, and so there's a crowd at the house. And these guys um, do what every good neighbor would do, because in verse 2 it says there was no room inside the house. So these guys do what every good neighbor do would do. They go up to the roof and they rip a hole in the roof. 
I mean, that's what you really want your neighbors to do when your house is packed. And what do they do? They lower him down through the roof. By the way, to lower a paraplegic, you don't lower him straight, <laughs> right? You're, gonna, you're ripping a pretty big hole in someone's roof. It would be a thatched roof. And they lower him down. And Jesus says something that is really would be blasphemy if he wasn't God. And they realize that. Look in verse 5. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Most people think he's going to say, You're healed, because that seems to be what Jesus did everywhere he went. And everywhere he went, people came to him, and they want healing. But instead, he says, Your sins are forgiven. Why is that such a bad thing? Well, the Jews provide us that in verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning where? Questioning in their hearts. Why did this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to him, why do you question these things in your heart? They never voiced this. Now, you could argue that maybe they were just really, Jesus was really good at guessing. He knew what they would probably say. That's not what the scripture says. God says in his word, he knew within his spirit what there was in their hearts. And if it wasn't clear enough, what does he do? He says, well, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. Actually, they're both pretty easy to say, right? I just said both of them. But one of them, you can vindicate. If I say your sins are forgiven, can anyone see that? No. But if we said to a paralytic who's sitting, lying on the floor in front of us, get up, pick up your bed and walk, and he picks up his bed and walks. By the way, someone who's a paralytic has atrophy. If they haven't been walking, they don't just pick up and walk. Some of us have had the fun experience of taking physical therapy. And I'm looking at the faces that had that. (laughs) Everyone went, hmm, yeah, right? When your muscles atrophy and you have to get someone to physically move your your muscles to get them back into movement like this again. And this man would have had atrophy. To pick up his bed and walk, not stumble, just walk off. You can prove that. So one of them actually is easier to say. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to prove it. Kind of like the the faith healers on TV. If you ever watch them, they always do miracles that can easily be done. A friend of mine, Justin Peters, he learned this little trick. Like you see people that extend someone's foot and he realized there's a a spot on your your kidney's heel that if if you just push it in the right way, your foot relaxes and it just extends a little bit and then a couple seconds later it goes right back. That's what they're doing. Like, look, it's a miracle. His foot's growing. Yeah, give it one minute. Oh, look, it's right back. That that's not what Jesus does here. He says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. What's he doing? He's trying to say, Okay, I read your mind. I want to prove to you what I was thinking and what I said, that I actually have that authority. 
that this authority that he has, he says to the paralytic, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And that's exactly what the man does. And so he's, if this is one of the passages I love because there's so many different ways he shows his deity in this one passage. Not only is he reading their minds, he's forgiving the man's sin. He's healing this guy miraculously and he takes the term son of man. Why is that? Well, if I had to keep reminding you that I was a human being, at some point, wouldn't you ask who exactly do you think you are? I mean, Jesus uses the term son of man more than any other term for himself. That's also, by the way, how we know son of God. If he is the son of man having the essence of man, son of God means he has the essence of God. Son of does not always mean offspring. Otherwise, we end up seeing that James and John were called the sons of, or sorry, yeah, James and John were called the sons of thunder. Well, I don't think two lightning bolts got together and, yeah, right? And so, but in this passage, what you see is Jesus is putting his deity on display by reading their minds. If you turn over to Mark, uh, to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, we, we see again with the Pharisees, they're not exactly happy with Jesus. In verse 22, he, he comes upon a demon-possessed man. And he speaks to him. And in verse 23, all the people are amazed. And they're asking this question, can this be the son of David? Now, that is a messianic term. The son of David was a king that was going to come and, and live forever and have an eternal reign. How do you do that? Well, you'd have to be eternal. Never die. So they're asking, is this the Messiah, basically? But the Pharisees said where? Or the, the, the Pharisees heard it. They, uh, they said, it, it must be from Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. Then in verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them that a kingdom can't be divided by itself. Where, where was it? Did they voice this concern that they had? No, they did not. No, Jesus knowing their thoughts, responded to them. Now, why is this one a little bit more interesting than the last passage? Well, it's very simple. Where you might be able to say he was a good guesser before, how would he have known that they were thinking that he's doing what he's doing by the power of Beelzebub or the devil? And there could be many things they could be thinking. But he's responding to a specific thought that they had. That they did this by the power of the devil. And and again, he read their minds. There are over 150 verses in the Gospels that refer to Jesus reading someone, uh, knowing all things, being omniscient. We're only going to go through eight just looking at where he read people's minds. So we're not going through all 150. (laughs) Pastor Carl's going, good, because, you know, Aaron goes long now. <laughs> I had to throw that in for those who are here in the Sunday school. Or then saw he put up a slide saying that he can end on time and I cannot. Uh, but if I did do 150 passages, I bet that I could do it faster than Pastor Aaron. I'm just saying, um, <laughs> had to put that in. Yeah, I'm getting the time signal already like I was getting all day yesterday. I ended on time, too. 
let's turn to, to Luke chapter 6. This is another passage I want you to look at because in Luke 6, we have the man with a withered hand. And verse is in verse 6. And this is on the Sabbath. Now, when we deal with the Sabbath, um, I, I, and I, I do a podcast this past Sunday, uh, not today, but last Sunday, I did a podcast on the topic of the Sabbath, talking about the differences between what I refer to as a universal Sabbath and the Sabbath that was created by Moses. But then we have the Sabbath that these guys did in Second Temple Judaism. They added a whole bunch of works to the Sabbath, things you could and couldn't do. And I mean, like good politicians, they know how to add lots of laws. And that's basically what they did. And so what you see here is they had this law of things you could and couldn't do on a Sabbath. And this is Luke 6, 6. On another Sabbath, he entered a synagogue and was teaching. And, the, and a man who was, uh, who was right, whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So here you have a man with a withered hand. He comes in and they're watching him, waiting to see if they can accuse him of something because you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. And what happens in verse 8? But he knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And then he, he heals the man. Oh, they were not happy with that, of course. But do you see, he ends up reading their thoughts. Now, you're in a congregation, you're in the synagogue, there's many people. But they were watching for the one. It's a, a person who he had to call out to bring forward. Now, maybe you, you're familiar with scriptures and you know that, you know, there's, like James would talk about not showing favoritism. And that would be what would happen in a synagogue. In, a, in the synagogues, basically, the... the, the the more money you gave to a synagogue, the more wealth you had, the closer you, you were able to sit. Clearly, they weren't Baptists. Baptists, you, the more you give, you'd probably be in the back, right? So, so but the, someone who had a withered hand would have been on the outskirts. They wouldn't have a, a place for them. They would, if they're even allowed in, they would be along the wall standing with, with others. So this is someone that they were waiting to see. Would he notice the person? Would he, is it, oh, he, was he going to see, well, if he heals that guy, what, we can accuse him for breaking the Sabbath. So out of all the people that were there, he pulls this man out. Why? Because he knew what they were thinking. He, he put that on display. He knew their thoughts. It's actually a, a definitive article there. Their specific thoughts. He knew them. Not that he knew in general what people might be thinking. And I'm, I'm giving you these verses so you see this is, happens over and over again. John chapter 6. So from Luke 6, go to John 6. I'm going to pull these together because I want you to see some things that we end up seeing with him and how this applies to the fact that Christ is omniscient, how it applies to us. But in John 6, 61, you end up seeing that when the disciples, uh, I'm starting verse uh, 60, but when the when his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. And, and the thing that they had heard, uh, you know, he's he's talking uh, that he is the bread of life and he's the only the only way they have to partake of him. 
This is different than what they hear from the rabbis. And when they hear this hard saying. But in verse 61. But Jesus. Knowing in himself. That his disciples were grumbling. He said to them. Does this offend you? Now he knew within himself. What that they were grumbling. Now let's be clear. It says disciples. And some of you are thinking 12 people. No, because if you look at verse 66, when he ends up hardening the statement even more in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These are people who many people who are following with him. It's not just the 12. It was many who followed with him, but not all were believers. And when he was saying these hard things, he knew they grumbled over this. And he says, do you take offense? Then what? If you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before. If you're here yesterday, we talked about the fact that some religions believe there was a pre-existence. We wouldn't hold to that. But Jesus having a pre-existence makes him different. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help. The words I have spoken to you are of the spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. He even knew who among them did not believe the words he was saying. So not only did he know they were grumbling, he knew which of them truly believed. All of those disciples professed to believe. You know, you go to churches and everyone in church professes to believe. But there will be some that will go to heaven and see people in church and go, how come so-and-so is not here? Or maybe you'll be surprised that so-and-so is there. I like what John MacArthur says. He says he's just hoping that he can recognize some of the people when they get there. That they haven't changed so much when they're glorified that he gets to recognize them. But the reality is what you end up seeing is that he knew which of these people in the crowd were about to walk away and never follow again. How do you know such things? Because he's omniscient. Because he's all-knowing. Uh, not to look at them, let me give you some other verses that you can look up on your own. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 48. Another case where in Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts in verse 47. Uh, also in John 6, which is where we are, in, starting in verse 1, you end up seeing, again, he's, gonna, he's going to, uh, well, actually, it's really in verses 15 and 16, he's going to end up, Again, showing that he has a knowledge of all things. I'd like you, though, to turn to John 7. Not too far from where we are. And looking at John 7, it's specifically 19 and 20. So this is a festival of the booths. I don't know how many of you ever enjoyed that festival. It's where you get to live outside of your house for a whole week. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, or not. Um, it doesn't work well in the days of electronics, especially, where you're not allowed to take any of that with you. Um, but you, you have this festival, um, and his, his, brothers, um, his brothers say to him, go, uh, go, you know, this is verse 3. So his brothers say to him, go, leave, go down to Judea, that your disciples may see what you're doing. For no one works in secret. This is a passage that many people 
think is a contradiction in Scripture, by the way. Uh, I, I did a podcast specifically on this. But people think that he, his brothers say, go show yourself to the world so that everyone would see. And he says to them in verse 6, and Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. I testify about it. Its, uh, its works are evil. You go up to the festival. I am not going up to this festival for my time has not fully come. And then what does he do? He goes to the festival. People think that that's a contradiction. But what is it the brothers told him to do? Go to the festival and put this on, put yourself on display. That's what he did not do. He did go to the festival, but the issue was whether he was going to put himself on display and do all these miracles. But why didn't he do that? Because, well, first off, he knew it wasn't the right time. He knew when he was supposed to have his trial and be sentenced to death. None of us know the day we're going to die. Even people who I, I had an interview with someone who he is a, a was a Navy chaplain. He had to deal with suicide over and over. He told me that the majority of suicide attempts fail. People who think they know the day they were going to die, yet even they didn't know that. Miraculous interventions in some of them where people would just come in and, and prevent it. And the reality is, is none, of, none of us knows when we are going to die. None of us knows it, but Jesus did. Jesus says, this is not my time. He would say that over and over to the, in the Gospels. He'd say it at Canaan when they were offering the wine. Not my time yet. He knew when his time was. He knew when everything was supposed to happen, how it was supposed to happen. And he's sitting there and he tells him, it's not my time. He goes down, not putting himself on display. It says in the very next verse, and this is what amazes me, people don't notice. Verse 10, but his brothers had gone up to the feast and then he went not publicly, but in private. That was the issue was whether he would go publicly. No, he went in private. But as you you drop down in verses 19 and 20, get the context. We'll start in verse 16 so we get all of what Jesus said. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but it is who sent me. If If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him is no falsehood. Has Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And what do they say? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, and he answered them to say, now here's the thing, they were not public, the Pharisees were not public about wanting to kill Jesus. If you remember, they wanted that to be quiet because they feared who? The people, the crowd. But Jesus is speaking specifically to those Pharisees who were conspiring. How did he know they were conspiring? Very simple, because he knows everything. So what we end up seeing as we go through these passages, and I I could have spent more time on each of them, but I'm trying to show Aaron how to end on time. Um, (laughs) 
By the way, I, I'm giving him a hard time. He was giving me a hard time all weekend, and it's it's just payback. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, I'm sure he knows how to, to, to end a sermon on time, right? <laughs> Wait, don't you live with him? <laughs> so, so, so the thing is, what you end up seeing is this. As we look through all the Gospels, two things I want to encourage you. When you go through the Gospels, do not just read. Don't skip these verses that we've seen. In just these few verses, we see how Jesus over and over again is reading people's minds. How he knows within his spirit what people are thinking. How he can answer things that people haven't even said. Why is that an encouragement to you and I? Because there are times in our life, like many times in our life, where we really wish we knew what was the future. <laughs> we knew we, that if we could just know what the right thing to do. But you know what? Jesus Christ put his deity on display, not just so he could show everyone that he is God. He did do that. He did show he was God. He did do that over and over again. That's important because that's what gives him that authority to give the forgiveness of sin. That's how come he can forgive. Because he has that authority because he's God. That's why he could be a sacrifice for us. So that when we struggle and we suffer. And we're, we're struggling with him. We can, we can turn to him and say, Lord, you know everything. When we have times in our life where Maybe we're like, oh, Lord, you know I like you. And maybe, maybe Peter wasn't convinced himself. But what is it he rests on? Lord, you know all things. There are times in our life we are not going to know what is in front of us. We don't know what the next step is. We do not know where things are going to take us. But we know the God who does. The one who came to earth as a man and died on a cross in our behalf sets the path for us. And he says that the path he sets for us will always glorify him. Even if we do not understand it. And there are plenty of times in our lives. Times when you lose a job or financial crisis or you get in a car accident. Things like this where you just don't know how you're going to move forward. God was not surprised by those things. Often we don't think about that. We forget about that. But the same Jesus who left heaven and came to earth to die in our place and put within us the Holy Spirit also knows everything. He knows every thought of our heart. Now some of us are going, yikes, Maybe that would help us in our sanctification to remember <laughs> that all those things we do, we think no one knows. You know, like my wife sends me to go shopping and I just pick up a little extra and eat it on the way home. So she doesn't know. I never do that, dear. She doesn't believe that at all. Right? I mean, we think we could do things and nobody is going to know. And yet, Christ sees all that. He knows all of that. That can help us in our sanctification. But where I want to encourage us is 
that when we struggle, when we have things that come in our life, they're in front of us, and we just do not know how we are going to move forward, let us never fear, because Jesus knew it all along. He wasn't surprised by it. There is no sin you can do that Jesus would go, oops, when I was on the cross, I didn't know you'd do that one. Right? He died, and he knew every sin. It, we're not going to surprise him in that way. So, so when people think, I've done something I can't be forgiven for as a believer, and I'm going to lose that salvation, well, Jesus knew you'd do that. He's omniscient. When there's things in our life that we struggle with and we can't, we just don't know how to move forward, rest in the fact that the same Christ who died on a cross for our sins is the same God who sets our path for us and knows all things.